Defined with Rachel Huddish. I'm Dr. Robin Sargent, owner of Idle Courses, and this is the place where newbies come to learn and veterans share their knowledge. In this episode, I'll be chatting with Rachel Huddish about the jargon and industry terms that are used in instructional design. We'll be sharing stories, analogies, and definitions to illuminate the meaning of each word and term. I have with me here today, Rachel Huddish, and she is an instructional designer and online learning developer. She has several different jobs. So Rachel, I'm going to let you describe what all those jobs are that you do and all the many hats that you wear um, and kind of your experience. But what we're going to talk about today is just all the jargon and the terms that are used in instructional design and online learning that you get that you hear that are just thrown around um, and used casually and people talk about these things as if everyone knows what they're talking about. But because this is for newbies, we decided that maybe we just come together and break them down. So Rachel, before we get into the jargon terms or the industry words, why don't you introduce yourself to our learners and tell us like what it is that you do and kind of how you became an instructional designer. Hey guys, I'm Rachel. Thanks for Robin, Robin for having me here today. So um, my career path, I started out in the world of video and TV production at AccuWeather before I transitioned um, to Penn State, where I kind of started my career path as an instructional designer. Um, so through many twists and turns, I ended up becoming an instructional designer and an LMS administrator. Um, so I've worked on content development, instructional design, multimedia, um, and of course, LMS administration. So that's kind of me in a nutshell, my 10-second elevator pitch. <laughs> you said you went through lots of twists and turns. What, how did you make that first, when did you get your first job where you had the title instructional designer, or online learning developer, whatever? Um, so I, so when I was at Penn State, I came into the College of Science and we had a very small team. My director at the time decided to go with a team of, that was very diverse. So she wanted videographers, multimedia specialists, but she was the only instructional designer. Um, so I started playing around in our CMS, which we were using Drupal at the time um, to kind of house all of our learning content and handling our assessments in, an L, in a separate LMS. So I just started picking up all of these things, um, and so I decided that I was going to go to grad school while I was working and get my master's in instructional systems. Um, so my husband just happened to get a job in the D.C. area, so that was, you know, my first um, real chance to make that career change from being a videographer who was playing as an instructional designer to actually being hired at a company to be an instructional designer. Um, and then as, um, you know, some, since I went to federal and government training, just a lot of how the political climate was at the time, um, we went through reductions in force. So I just started picking up more and more hats, such as multimedia, because that's what my background was in, 
and um, then picking up Blackboard System Administration. And last summer, I migrated us from the Blackboard Learning Management System to Desire to Learn. Okay, awesome. I know that everybody loves to hear the story about where you came from. So we collaborated together and we decided to kind of group the different jargon terms into higher levels. So our first one that we're going to start with is online learning, right? Yeah. And so some of the things that you hear are a lot of acronyms. So we're going to like break those down. So we got WBT, CBT, e-learning, online learning, and mobile learning. <laughs> yep. Which I, we were laughing at the beginning because I said like, this could be a whole podcast on its own. But then like, as Robin pointed out, you know, really at this stage in the game, they've really all kind of mean very similar things. Right. So WBT is web-based training. CBT is computer-based training. And then e-learning, right? That is mm -hmm. usually people talk about e-learning. If you're going to define e-learning, it has to do with somebody used an authoring tool to wrap up a package of information and then put it online. So that's usually what people are talking about. And then online learning, well, that can take, it's if you're learning online, like a webinar can be considered online learning. Yeah. And then mobile learning, what, that's just the same thing as online, except for it's like on your phone. Yeah, or like mobile as in like, you know, you can go anywhere. Um, there's like the, there was like this whole like Swedish study about like kids getting these devices and going around a museum as like a scavenger hunt. And that was considered mobile learning. Right. Absolutely. And then also mobile learning might even be more like instead of just a web page that you're learning from, you're learning from a, an app. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the next one is authoring tools. That's something that we hear a lot about in online learning. Authoring tools, you know, they're software used to package up multimedia, usually for online delivery. Um, the, you know, star examples are Adobe Captivate and Adobe St Articulate Storyline are pretty much examples of authoring tools. Yeah. And I always say, I always like to say that Articulate Storyline is basically PowerPoint on crack. So you still use the same functions of creating slides and they're even called slides in Articulate Storyline, but you can add more interaction. So you can add hotspots, which you can do in PowerPoint, but you can add hotspots that then have triggers that do other fancy things like light boxes or layers can come in and move, or you can, you know, add uh, a value to a variable in your, in your project. I don't want to get too complicated. It's not that complicated as it sounds when you say variables and triggers and whatever, but it's just basically PowerPoint on crack and, and very similar with uh, Captivate except for theirs is it's a little more uh, clunky and uh, you can even import PowerPoints into Articulate Storyline and Captivate. Yeah. I always like the analogy of like when you're trying to compare like um, Adobe and Articulate both have Presenter, which is like kind of their plugin for uh, PowerPoint is, you know, everybody's like, well, you know, when would you use one versus the other? Um, it really just depends. Like, think of it as like a pickup truck. Do you need, do you need a truck that's going to pull like a boat or do you need a truck that's going to pull like a house? <laughs> so really when you're like getting into like the nuts and bolts of like your development, 
thinking about what you need your authoring tool to be able to do. Like if you're doing like all these really dynamic um, branch scenarios, like you would want to use something like Captivate or Storyline. But if you're just trying to make like a really dynamic interactive presentation, um, then, you know, going with something like Presenter or a SlideShare or something like that might be, you know, a little bit easier to use. Excellent. Okay. That's good. So we all know what authoring tools are. We know what online learning is and all those different terms. How about this term that you hear a lot called 508 compliance? Oh, 508 <laughs> compliance. Kind of the bane of every instructional designer. Um, it basically means that, you know, from the U.S. Workforce Rehabilitation Act in 1973, um, which is a federal law, all electronic and um, information technology has to adhere to being accessible to people of dis with disabilities. Um, you know, it goes beyond just supporting bl the blind or deaf and hard of hearing. It also seeks to support people with physical, sensory, or cognitive disabilities. Um, for example, navigation like buttons and tabs and fonts need to be accessible for visual impairment, such as color blindness or low vision. So um, both in color and then in high contrast. So high contrast is when like you flip your browser to be in um, like in black mode versus, you know, usually the bright white mode. Um, some people just have different visual acuity. acuity. Have you had to do any 508 compliance? I have been an instructional designer for you know, like 12 years, but and I've never had anybody uh, request this of me. How about you? Yes, I have actually, because I've worked for academic institutions and in federal and government training, I've had to create captions and transcripts. Um, I've had to make sure that HTML code is 508 compliant so that when a screen reader goes through, it'll, um, read it a specific way to make it easier um, for the navigation for the user um, and then updating like colors within a system because if you know if they don't contrast well on each other um, or if you have like a button that's red and the text is green somebody with color blindness might not be able to distinguish that because it's just going to look like a giant brown dot right right and 508 compliance a lot of that uh heavy lifting is done in authoring tools, but also if you do it for university curriculum, I remember that uh, in the blueprint, if I wanted to include an image, I had to also include the alternative text for that image. Yeah. So those kinds of things are included in 508 compliance. Okay, so since we were talking about authoring tools, we also have to talk about SCORM. You hear SCORM a lot. A lot of people talk about SCORM as, like, as if everybody knows what that is, but that is just not the case. And that is the mm -hmm. shareable content object reference model. So do you want to talk about SCORM? <laughs> <laughs> so SCORM, um, so since I work in, in federal and government training primarily, um, SCORM is a DOD initiative. It can't, I think it came out of the um, well, it came out of the Department of Defense, but I think it was I think it was Navy that pushed it through. Um, I could be completely wrong here. I read that too. Uh, <laughs> but so they they pushed it out as a way of basically it takes um, your learning object and packages it up to gather the data interaction um, with 
the learning content. So how users are interacting with the content within the system. So if you put in a Captivate item, they, they want it packaged up in SCORM so that they can get the data of like how long a user stayed on a page, um, you know, how, how many of the users got a certain question wrong. It's kind of like, you know, how you're building out an LMS and you might go in and review a quiz to see, oh, 20% of my students got this one question correct, whereas 80% got it wrong. So do I need to address this in the, um, in the content? Do I need to follow up with these students to make sure that they're understanding the materials? Like, um, that's really what we're trying to gather here from, from the SCORM is that different interaction data. Yeah, that's right. Um, and a lot of times the SCORM package looks like a little package whenever you, you hit publish on your authoring tool and then you have these options and it'll say SCORM 1.2 or um, it'll say Tin Can API or, you know, SCORM 2004. And based on your learning management system will determine usually what kind of package you publish your e-learning course to. And then you'll go to the learning management system and you will just like just like any kind of other file, you just drag and upload it to your learning management system. It sounds a lot more fancy than the tech is, of course. I'm sure that's all very fancy. But as far as like the actual physical actions to publish to a SCORM file and load on a learning management system is not very difficult. And I just wanted to make that clear to people who think, oh, that sounds so intimidating. But it's not. It's very easy. You're just uploading a file. Yep. Okay. So then next, I think we have the learning management system. LMS. Which is one of my favorites. So an LMS is a software application that's used to administer, track, and report and deliver training. Um, these are your Blackboard, Canvas, D2L, Moodle, Schoology, um, just to name a few. You can also build them out using um, you know, a content management system like Drupal um, is used widely at Penn State. Um, they use the Elms plugin, so it's e, it's an e-learning management system. Um, so this basically it makes it so that you can automatically add your learners, enroll them in the appropriate courses, roll out exams, issue certificates, and access the you know data reports. That's right, and uh, you know it's very important in corporate training and of course in uh, university settings is to track learner behavior, right? We don't know if somebody took a course or if they've uh, met compliance requirements unless we are able to track what they are doing. And the only real way to do that is through an LMS. And also an LMS allows for people to, um, oh shoot, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> what back, back oh, I know, I know, I know what it is. Uh, LMS. But, oh yeah. Uh, the other th Thing, the other beauty about an LMS is that they can start where they left off. So there's like the administrative functions of an LMS where you can track everything and push things out to learners. But when a learner comes back to learning management systems, if they're, if they're good ones, then they can start back over where they left off. So they can like leave a program and then come back and that video will start where, where they last left off or uh, they'll start in the in the e-learning course or the SCORM package where they left off instead of having to skip through things. Right. Um, or they'll, uh, 
They'll also be able to like monitor their own notifications. So if they want to get emails when um, they're reaching their deadlines, um, the system, they can set up their notifications so that it automatically sends them like a reminder. Um, there's also ways within like from an instructor view that they can um, kind of maybe preload some of the learning content and the learning instruction, especially if they're in like a self-paced or a like semester long course, if they wanna like rewrite announcements and then set them on a date release, um, just so that's a little less um, lift that an instructor has to do during a semester when they're trying to you know grade everything. Um, it's really just kind of making the learning um, kind of contained and simplified for your users, so both your students and your instructor, and then from the back end for the administrator to really um, make it easy to gather the data reports and make sure that people are, are being managed efficiently. Right, and there's so many cool things that are happening in LMSs, right? Now they're including uh, some social features, some gamification, which will like explain a little bit more about what that means, and you can, you know, there's a lot of uh, different elements that are being added onto the learning management systems more than there ever was before. So yeah, those are fun. Okay. The next thing that we're going to talk about is X API, which always sounds a little intimidating to some people. So let's break it down. Um, so an X API is an e-learning specification um, that allows one to collect data about a wide range of experiences a person has, whether it's online or offline training. Um, the one example that I really like to use is um, Amazon and Google have APIs for translations in their open um, source code. Um, so you can take the APIs and add them into like Articulate Storyline, which like we talked about as an authoring tool to automatically translate your content from one language to another. Um, so if you have an articulate project that's separate from a website. Um, so you wouldn't really be able to use, like if you were on Chrome, you'd be able to just like use Google translate and translate it from, you know, say English to French. Whereas in a authoring tools um, exported package, you wouldn't really be able to do that. But if you added the API in when you know, you're building out the storyline and then you package it up and you put it in your LMS, then your users have the option of translating it. That's very cool. That is a very good example of XAPI. And it sounds like very easy. It's very relatable to understand that. I think uh, there's really, I mean, what else can we say about um, XAPIs, right? So I think you've summed it up nicely. Anything else would yeah. just be confusing. <laughs> so XAPI also used to be known as like the tin can API. Um, so that's yeah, learning learning record store. So that's um, you know it all it all takes into account all these different you know kind of things that the programming that a lot of us don't really get into. Um, but it's like as my husband always says, it's just enough programming to be dangerous. Right. And there's opportunities, of course, if you get into it, you can go and learn more about XAPI. But usually you don't run into it unless you have a very specific goal in mind. And then you realize, oh, I can only accomplish this goal if I have um, specific triggers 
that I can add to it, like the, you know, who did what and what was done and then who was it done to. When you had to add like those, those different layers of triggers to the learning management system that talks from, you know, like you said, in-person activities and also online activities, then you're going to need the XAPI. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, and then in a learning management system, sometimes you'll see like an XAPI or an LTI used to integrate like a third-party software. So in, for example, in D2L, if I wanted to put in um, test out content, I can get an LTI link from them and just in it, integrate it on the back end. And it's like, it acts like a single sign-on, like it's one system. So your students don't really notice that you're pushing them out to a third party. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, a lot of I APIs are used just in regular software besides even when we're talking about training, right? So like, just like you said, the single sign-on. So say you have to sign on to your, um, what's that Microsoft site that you use in corporate? Uh, SharePoint. And then some, and sometimes they'll have your login to SharePoint also be the same login that you use for your learning management system, even though it's a different site. Mm -hmm. And it's all connected through this thing called API. Yeah. For example, like, and then to like piggyback off of that, like there's SIS, which is a student information system. So at a lot of institutions, um, mostly like colleges and universities, you'll have a, a student information system, which is houses like the registration information, um, their financial information, and then, you know, that kind of pushes it out to like their email systems and, you know, any of the internal software that the university uses and then usually their LMS. Um, so that way they just like log into like a student portal and they can access all that information without having to log in multiple times. It's all about, you know, creating that positive user experience. Right. And so, of course, we're going to include all these terms that we're talking about and their definitions in our show notes. But so we've started with the online learning part and all those terms that you hear. And what's important about these terms is, one, because they are, you know, in our industry. But two, if you have to go for an interview, sometimes and a lot of times, a lot of these different terms that we're discussing will be brought up in your interview. So it's always good to know your industry language. All right, let's move on to some fun stuff like instructional methods. So we've got under here micro learning, um, which I always kind of chuckle at because um, everybody thinks that, you know, micro learning is like this huge thing right now. Um, it's really just a buzzword for ways of, you know, really honing down your content into brief targeted learning objects um, that are less than like three to six minutes. Um, Robin noted, like, we've got all these little nuggets and, you know, they can be connected or they can be standalone. Um, you know, thinking about it, there was a study published by Google where like our attention spans because of, you know, how everything's um, becoming so mobily accessible that our intention, our attention spans are like four minutes. You've got four minutes to like tell people what they want to know when they want to know it. Otherwise they're gone. Um, we're, we're just like switching our mindsets from Facebook to email to all these different things. You know, every four minutes, we're just switching gears. 
Um, so that's really where the push of micro learning is coming out. Um, and um, so one of the examples I really like to use is the BuzzFeed Tasty videos. I love those. <laughs> so they're 60 seconds to like five minutes. Um, and they just like, they're like the cameras overhead and it just like shoots them like going through a recipe. And it just like tells you like all the like tips and tricks and like gives you the whole recipe in like 60 seconds. And they, I mean, it's so, I don't know why it's so compelling to just watch them pour ingredients in a bowl and then like, right. <laughs> it's, it's like an instant cake. You know, they just, they did, they, the cake is ready in 60 seconds. It's so satisfying. Like I was watching one the other day with like cream cheese and they were making like a cream cheese frosting. And I'm like, oh, you got to get a mixer out. And they just like started misking, with, mi mixing it with a whisk. And I was just like, I wouldn't do that. I would use a mixer. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, point. Your, your cream cheese would have to be really soft. To mix it with like a hand whisk. Like, yeah. I'm like those poor people. <laughs> <laughs> But that, uh, but it's also a good example uh, of yes, micro learning, but also giving people only the information that they need in order to accomplish some kind of goal or result or like whatever it is that they want to know, instead of being like, and then you get out the mixer and then you take the eggs and you crack them. Like, it's like, no, you just cut that stuff out. Be like, boom, 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 cake, ding. And that's right. And that's and people are happy to learn that way. And that's another reason why micro learning is so effective. But like you said, it's not that new because people have been creating short information bites for a long time. It just maybe hasn't always been in video format. Right. And it's like and then you think about it from like, um, you know, all your like kind of like help guides. Like once, you know, they create these videos, all, it's really easy to go back in and like grab the screenshot and then just write out the instructions. And then at any point in the process, you could just like reference it. Right. Without having to go rewatch the video. Um, so it just kind of like gives people a way to really like pinpoint their learning instead of like having to sit through like this ginormous thing. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And um, the next thing we have is game-based learning and gamification. And I bring them both up at the same time because there's a lot of confusion about both of them and if there's even a distinction. Right. So game-based learning to me, I'm always, I'm just going to preface this with to me, um, game-based learning is when you're, you're learning within a game. Um, there was like a big wave, um, probably about 10 years ago to use like second life as part of like, you know, game-based learning. Whereas gamification applies game mechanics to something that clearly is not a game. Right. I actually wrote my dissertation on gamification of corporate training. And, and it was because I'm so, it's so funny that you brought up Second Life. I thought I was going to write it about, um, you know, like these like massive online uh, player games and, mm -hmm. and then I was and then it like evolved into gamification and it's because we can you don't have to build an entire game which is game-based learning like you said in order to make learning effective with game elements and um, what's interesting about 
I'm kind of going on a tangent now, but what's interesting about gamification is that you can pull out the elements of games like points, levels, leaderboards, uh, storytelling, narrative, and all those kinds of things. And you can apply it to maybe micro learning or whatever it is. And then you can drive specific behaviors, right? Cause if you right. give somebody like an entire game based learning, they could be in that game and they could be in that game because their motivation is to play the game. And then maybe learning happens as kind of like a secondary item. But if you use gamification elements, like say you put points on something that you know increases learning retention, right? So um, say uh, time on task, you know that increases learning retention. And so you give somebody points to stay longer on a task in your course. And so that means that you are using these gamification elements to drive behaviors that you know increase learning effectiveness. And that's why gamification is being used more and more in instructional design. Right, and, it, and let's just be really clear here. Gamification is about you know, changing people's behavior. Yeah. Whereas it's not just, you know, taking your training and then creating a, taking your old like PowerPoint certificates and then turning them into badges. That's not what we're doing here. You're really looking at incentivizing people to change their behavior. Right. And even like concentrate on specific behaviors. Right. Right. Yeah. That's good. Like, like an example is companies that give their employees Fitbits and then they incentivize them um, so like they'll give them a goal for points for the quarter and then they'll let, um, employees create challenges, um, like to get out and walk over the weekend and see who gets the most steps because the person who's in first gets an extra 200 points. So it's really like incentivizing them to lead a healthier lifestyle. That's great. All right. So let's get off of games because I could go on and on. Let's go to, <laughs> to instructional design models. So my jam is definitely backwards design um, or understanding by design, UBD, um, which is really a method for setting goals before choosing the instructional methods and forms of assessments. It really starts by identifying the desired results and then determining the acceptable evidence. And then you plan your learning experiences and instructional methods off of, off of those needs. Right. And that's pretty much how it's, I mean, that's the standard now for instructional design, right? Everyone should be starting with the end goal. Like what are the final outcomes that you want for your lesson or your course or whatever? Right. Or yeah. action mapping is another term for it, but it is all most instructional designers are using the backwards like design. Yeah, I think it's just easier and it's more straightforward to really ask yourself the question of what do you really want your student to be able to do after, you know, a module or a um, after they take a course? Like, what do you want them to be able to do in their field? Um, and really like, what do you want them to take away from the course? Because if it's just, you know, writing paper for writing a paper for writing a paper's sake, that's not really going to have as much value as saying doing something a little bit more um, dynamic um, and, analy and analytical. 
unless of course you are an English major and you have to get yeah. better at writing. So then that, yeah. <laughs> that's when you should be writing papers. Uh, but man, I've, uh, anytime you go through any kind of higher education experience, you have to write so many papers. <laughs> Yeah. And it's just like, I think that's like everybody's like default mode of like, let's just throw in a paper um, instead of like, you know, maybe thinking a little bit outside of our, our go-to boxes. Right. So we'll try not to get onto a tangent about um, how <laughs> higher education prepares instructional designers. We'll, right. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that alone for some other time. All right. right. <laughs> There's another model that's kind of gaining a, um, a lot of popularity. Well, just in at least the circles that I've seen, and it's called the, I mean, it's been around for a long time, but it's called the 70-20-10 model. And I've actually never heard of this model. Really? So I'm actually, yes, I'm actually really intrigued. Okay, so I've been seeing it a lot. And um, so basically what it, what it means is that 70% of our actual learning comes from new experiences. And a lot of those um, new experiences are like when we are applying information or when we're making mistakes out in the world or when we're, you know, we're just trying to figure things out for ourselves. That's where a lot of our learning comes from. And you can see this like when you like raising kids and you see little babies and um, they're just like little scientists walking around, you know, trying to get reactions from things. And so that's where 70% of our learning comes from. And then 20% is learning from others. And so that's like social learning, getting feedback, our teachers, that kind of stuff. And then it says only 10% from courses and materials. And that means everything. And so... This has been around for a while. I didn't put it in my notes like the exact year, so I'll put it in the show notes or something. But um, this is why, especially in corporate training, instructional designers keep talking about the 70-20-10 model because they say, like, why are we keeping people in courses for so long when what they really need is, like, hands-on training. They need the experience of learning on the job and, and things like that. That's why I think uh, it comes up a lot in corporate training. Yeah, that's really cool. Cause it's like thinking about it from, you know, giving people the training that they need when they need it instead of like plopping them in like a self-paced course where they're going to be in there for six months and they might not learn something in time to apply it on their job. So then that affects their job performance and then, you know, their job reviews. Right. Exactly. Right. So um, there are several other models in instructional design, uh, but we just wanted to give some of the popular ones uh, that, that are kind of circulating right now. So let's move on to instructional design methods. Hey, before we go on to like models and methods, maybe we should define kind of the difference between a model and a method. And um, so for me, a model is just kind of like um, like an an ideal based on you know of course there's research and whatever that goes into it, and then a method is how you apply um, the theories. It's like the practice of a discipline. Would you agree with those yeah. like kind of? Yeah. That's how you'd separate them. Yeah. Okay. I mean, anyway, anyway, you slice it. It's really like you're 
it either you're you're cherry picking from from a method or a model um, and kind of applying it because really when you're when you're approaching whatever you're building um, sometimes it's helpful to not really be married to one specific model um, sometimes you know you might use UBD versus other times you might need a more agile approach which we or, you, or you might end up using a mix of both right and one and in our in our categories those fall into different right the uh the ubd is a model and agile would be a method yeah yeah okay but you basically you do need both right you do need to be aware of both whenever you're creating curriculum like a method and a model yes yeah yeah so i mean I, a lot of us when it comes to instructional design uh, methods you know we're really familiar with the addy model um, that I know for a fact was developed by the Navy. Um, that's how um, that came out in like the 1950s. Um, it rolled out um, because they wanted to standardize um, how all of their boot camps were. Um, Fascinating. Yeah, um, that's like my tiny little ADDIE model tidbit. Um, so ADDIE stands for Analysis, Design, Development, Implementation, and Evaluation. Um, so those are kind of the different um, stages that you go through with Addy. Um, similar models to that include uh, Dick and Carrie, um, but Dick and Carrie allows for revisions, whereas Addy is much more of a start to finish kind of process. Um, and then we move into SAM. Um, Robin, have you developed using SAM at all? I think that, um no is my answer but i think that you kind of do develop uh according to sam on accident in many ways especially like as you kind of go along and you see oh well i need to have um, some kind of prototype for my stakeholders and so you give it to them and then they give you feedback and then you kind of do a reiteration uh, to develop the training in a different way based on their feedback sometimes or you keep going forward so a lot of times Sam happens on accident and just like um, I always thought that I was like you know diehard Addy but I don't always think that Addy's always like a waterfall method either but they but according to definitions they say like oh it's always linear but that's not all, that hasn't been my case even though like that's always in my mind is analysis design development and so forth but um, because of if you're integrating feedback into your process and your design then it seems almost as if you follow some of the other models that are called agile even though you might not realize it specifically yeah so then like agile is comes from the project management term where you're basically you're working in sprints and they're typically like two week sprints so you'll you'll design and develop something and you'll roll it out and then you'll move on to the next phase but you'll eventually like swing back um, and do the um kind of the revision of the process um while you're while you keep like working ahead um so if you're you know developing milestones within your course within your course development um so you're working on like say modules one and two and you roll those out for review well and then during that time like two week time of review for 
your key stakeholders, you might be working on modules three and four. And then as you get feedback on the first two modules, you might be integrating that feedback. And it's just kind of like keeps the process moving forward. Have you ever actually uh, done an agile model applied to instructional design where you roll out some kind of two week, two week uh, prototype sprint to your learners? Have you ever um, not not formally um right i'm working on a project now that's very similar it's kind of applying the agile model using um backwards design for the instructional design model um but in terms of like the agile if you were to do it during a live course development it really feels like you're running you're running in front of the train um that means that you've got like two weeks of content in your lms and like you see this in a lot of colleges who are just like now now starting to launch their learning management systems. So their instructors may not be like as um, you know familiar with the LMS. So they're just like they're putting content in you know kind of a week before the students even need to like start learning it. Um, so that's really like where an agile model can kind of be a hindrance because sometimes it seems like there's no plan. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I'm like an expert to talk about agile, but it, se it seems like, you know, not only that, it's like, uh, that just seems crazy because I've worked on a client project where we were only a week ahead of the learners and it's not necessarily agile because it's supposed to be from what I, what I understand, it's supposed to be that you have two, like you do a sprint and you roll that out and then you're supposed to get feedback and then you do another sprint on that same module to kind of bring in their feedback and make it better. That's, that's what I understand. And I've never actually seen that happen. And uh, I know it happens a lot for um, application development for like in IT worlds, but I haven't, I haven't experienced or seen anybody do it in that way in the yeah, course I development. It, I think it would be really hard to do it in the course development. You, I mean, you might be able to address it as, from like a college or university standpoint, like an instructor may be able to like gather that feedback and then on like their, um, like they could just post like a little video that like updates students if there's like pain points that they need to kind of go in and review. That could be like how you address it during a live course. Um, but, you know, it's it's kind of just goes back to that whole like running in front of the train. It's like nobody likes that like anxiety feeling. Um, so I think like, you know, it's it's good from a project management perspective because you can kind of like map out what you're going to do over two weeks. But from a course development standpoint, it just, of course, I had to have a notification go off. From a course development standpoint, it really, I think, is a hindrance. Yeah, and I'm sure the, I, people are allowed to disagree with us. We're just, this is our perspective, right? And so, yeah. <laughs> well, let's go on to... Uh, if Agile's your thing, more power to you. Yeah, maybe you can explain to us how to actually apply this in a corporate training perspective, because I can't imagine, like, um, even, like, test... I, testing things to learners and getting them to pay attention in a corporate environment. And then they'd be like, uh, like, why do you keep bringing back the same course to me? 
right. Like I would be, I would be freaking out. (laughs) And I, and I I seem to think like that I, that I handle like stress and like all these different like demands really well. But I feel like if I was put into an agile environment, I would be freaking out. (laughs) We supposedly get a whole team. Supposedly. Supposedly. But <laughs> all right. I'd, I'd believe it when I see it. Yeah. Yeah. We'll just, we'll just, all right. So you know what Agile is and, uh, and I'd be surprised if you use it as an instructional designer. And if you do, let us know. Let's go on to learning experience design. And Ooh. yeah, have you um, seen this one come, in, come around a lot in kind of your, your industry terms? Um, I have, but I haven't gotten to use it yet. Um, I was at DevLearn over the summer and one, two of the presenters were talking about a learning experience design model that they're um, starting to roll out that looked really um, interesting. Um, But I haven't gotten to, to apply anything like that in current trainings. Right. And Basically, what learning experience design means, it's about uh, creating human-centered learning experiences. And you'll hear a lot of people say, like, learning experience design is replacing instructional design. But from what I understand is that learning experience design is mostly about just the the design part of – Uh, whenever you're doing instructional design and it's about thinking about your learner and your avatar and, you know, getting feedback from them and um, kind of the process that you go through uh, before you ever start really designing or developing the full course. It's about getting in front of the learners and finding out, you know, what is going to be uh, like the most helpful for them in the context that it'll be applied to. Is that how you understood it? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and so it just, it, it kind of includes a lot more upfront uh, analysis, if you will, but it's all, you know, more audience interviews or observations or sometimes even bring, bringing the learners in to co-create with you. And so this, this can happen even in the corporate environment too. So that's learning experience design. It, it won't replace instructional design. It just says, hey, like think about the learners more at the very beginning of whatever you're going to create. Right. It's like, how are they accessing the content? And then, you know, what is kind of the content that they really need to learn? All right. So let's move from the models. I mean, the methods, the methods. <laughs> to just like who are all these project team members and like some of the names that are given to people whenever you're whenever you're creating a course and some of these titles are for I don't know are they all are they used uh globally like stakeholder do you have stakeholders when you I guess you do mm-hmm. yeah like yeah. deans in the higher education space would be a stakeholder of a course yeah. 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 So you think about your stakeholders. You have like both internal and external stakeholders. Stakeholder stakeholders is a very like project management term. Um, so you know your internal stakeholders, if you're working at a university, are your your deans, your academic advisors, kind of uh, all the people that you need to kind of touch base with um, throughout like the development of a course. 
your external stakeholders could be your, they're obviously your students, um, but they could also be, um, if you're, if you're working as, you know, a subcontractor, they could be your client, um, you know, who's really going to take ownership of the training once, you know, you've kind of built it. Um, that can be one of your external stakeholders. Um, my example here is um, over the summer, I did an LMS migration. So I was kind of part of a project team. So I had both my internal and my external stakeholders. Um, so that could be like the director of IT was an internal stakeholder, whereas my external stakeholders were the implementation team from Brightspace. There you go. And uh, in a corporate, uh, the stakeholders are usually your executives or the VPs. And then also um, you have stakeholders who could be managers of the people that you're going to deliver the training to. And several different people could be stakeholders. It's whoever is kind of uh, in charge of your, of your course or your training project. Right. And then like you've got your SME who are your sub your subject matter experts. So they really have like the field and the knowledge area to really provide you with the content. Um, as instructional designers, we're not content experts, we're learning experts. So we know how to package everything up to make it be a successful learning experience. Right. Um, and so in order to do that, we have to work in partnership with our subject matter experts. And, um, and so sometimes that means, you know, in the corporate environment, if you have a subject matter expert, they are your subject matter expert, but they have another job to do usually. Like their job is not to be a subject matter expert. Whereas uh, my experience in creating university curriculum is you have a subject matter expert who is that because they either have because they have a PhD in that field, and that is their job is to just focus on being your subject matter expert. Hold on a sec. I got to email the school real quick. Oh, because are you late? Um, I will be in eight minutes, but it's okay. We're I'm actually we're at the end. I know, I know, and I know you can cut this part out. So I'm hoping that my typing didn't show up. Um, I was just emailing the school secretary. So, so yeah, so, okay. So subject matter expert. Um, yeah. So it's a partnership between, between the two. Um, and sometimes I, I've worked with SMEs who kind of don't really understand the role of an instructional designer. So sometimes, you know, being upfront with them that they're really the content expert, um, you know, that that's their kind of like their baby. And um, sometimes they have like a very big ego when it comes to that content. So some of the, sometimes some people just need reassurance that you're not there to really, um, you know, step on their feet in terms of the content. You're really just there to kind of help them mold and shape that to be able to teach it more effectively. Right. And we could go on and on about how to work with subject matter experts, but that's another topic. Right, <laughs> like that can be a whole thing on its own. Well, that just kind of brings us to like a e-learning developer or content developer, which we have in there. And so, um, but that's different from what you just said about the subject matter expert, right? So, right. So, an e-learning develop developer or content developer 
is usually responsible for creating the visual and graphic design or like the course um, content layouts, um, basically the presentation of, of content and information to the learners, especially if it's, you know, in meaningful and engaging ways. Um, these are your infographics, your videos, the storylines and captivate learning objects and so on. And then we have an e-learning specialist or an online content strategist. So these positions focus on the designing, developing, and evaluating an e-learning or um, online content. They usually look at it from a course or program level. So these are kind of your people who plan out um, your content um, in terms of like, you know, a course program. So if you're looking at it from an academic perspective, if you're going to roll out a program in entrepreneurship, you know, what are the courses that would go under that and kind of parsing them out um, in ways that are meaningful and effective and then thinking about how um, your current teaching and assessment methods would get deployed, um, reviewing customer surveys, and then, you know, suggesting ways that you can innovate or improve a course or program's materials that really makes it engaging and scalable. Right. So basically, like, they are really good at making learning paths. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> just keep it simple. And then um, keep it simple. just keeping it simple. And then our last and final category, and then we will stop peppering you with all these instructional design terms. Uh, we have blended or hybrid learning. And really all this is, and I'm just going to summarize this, uh, is that a blended learning means there is an online compo component and an on-site component. So you, uh, you may have heard of the flipped classroom, and basically what that means is somebody goes and they take uh, an online course where they learn the information that usually a teacher would lecture on in the classroom, but then they use the face-to-face -face or the on-site instruction for group activities, or they use it to ask questions and get live feedback. So that is an example of blended learning or hybrid learning. It's just a combination of online and in-person training or course design. And then you've got your instructional systems design, which is a, a fun way of you know saying instructional design. Um, it's usually used by the military and, or government training. You'll see a lot of programs that are like educational technology. Um, Penn State just renamed their program to learning design and technology um, from instructional systems just to kind of update it with a more current term. Yeah, and the, um, you'll see the acronym is ISD. But usually if, in my experience, if I ever see instructional systems designer, it's always applied to some kind of uh, instructional design for the military. I don't, I don't see it a lot in corporate job boards, but if you're searching all the key terms, might as well throw that one in there. Yep. Yep. I still abbreviate it as ISD in like every email. You do? And yeah. And every like, um, you know, if I'm doing a, a project board or something like if, and I'm mapping out like whose responsibility it is, I'll put ISD next to it instead of ID. Haha, <laughs> I see. I hear the little kid. Okay. 
And then um, the next one is, uh, what is a module? Uh, a lot of people kind of use modules and lessons and course and uh, all those kinds of things. They use them interchangeably. But usually what people mean by a module is like, a, it's like the larger topic. And then a lesson is a piece of that topic that you're going to learn. So module one can have 10 lessons. Module two have five lessons and so forth. Right. Most people are familiar with module. We just threw it in there. Yeah. Yeah. Mod module is like a lesson. Um, Wait. A, <laughs> objective versus an outcome. Um, you know, one of them is usually more associated with a goal where like an objective, what you hope to learn an outcome, what students will be able to do at the end of the course um, or at the end of a module. Right. And so we have learning outcomes and learning objectives and learning objectives. So say, for instance, if you are writing a lesson, then you will write learning objectives just for that lesson. And they get really specific and really narrow and they use verbs and usually measurable verbs uh, to for what you want the students uh, to do or hopefully do in that course. Or that lesson and then the outcomes is like what do you want somebody to be able to do at the end of all your modules or all your courses like if you have a, a group of them those are usually your outcomes yeah so you usually it just you know depends on sometimes it depends on the id who's developing it sometimes it depends on the content as to whether you would use one or the other and since we're talking about objectives and outcomes, and we have to mention Bloom's taxonomy, there are other ones, but this is like the main one that you got to know. And that, uh, and Bloom's taxonomy is basically a system of verbs that start at the simple and go all the way to the complex um, to describe learning objectives. And you use these verbs so that, and you should use the measurable ones, but you use these verbs in the Bloom's taxonomy to write your learning objectives so that you know. Um, so if you say somebody, somebody is able to analyze the data in a chart and determine if the company is, uh, you know, successful or whatever, I guess you should say something more specific like uh, 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 profitable. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> then you know that you have to take them through in your course, they have to actually perform that action. And that's kind of what Bloom's taxonomy is, is finding those verbs so that you can measure their success and then applying them in your actual course. There's right. more to say about Bloom's taxonomy. If you want. Right. Um, Kelt has a um, C-E-L-T, I think they're um, Indiana University. They usually, they have a really good um, resource um, that goes through kind of Bloom's taxonomy from the different domains. So like the cognitive and psychomotor um, as well to give you kind of examples of how you can really apply the different, the hierarchy to um, the different ways that you might want your students to um, be measured when it comes to the assessment. Right. And just the like one last sentence, like for Bloom's taxonomy, taxonomy, just one more sentence for Bloom's taxonomy is it is a hierarchical ordering of cognitive skills that can, among countless other uses, help teachers teach and students learn. And that's just like the one sentence 
uh, definition I, I thought was useful. And our last and final, final term for you is storyboarding. So this one's pretty easy, right? Storyboarding, this is what you do before you develop the final or a version of the iteration of your course. And it's usually used for online learning courses. You'll create a storyboard where you take your script and you map it out in some kind of storyboard. And this could even be something that you just write on a piece of paper and draw things, or you can put it in a PowerPoint. There's a storyboard template on my website, or uh, you can, um, there's several other tools that you can use where you just map out what you want the narration to say, what you want on the screen, and you are designing what the screen should look like and you storyboard every single screen. And you do this so that you can see like the big picture and move things around before you get into the heavy lifting of the development work of an online course. Right, and like sometimes what will end up happening is um, a lot of us end up using like a blueprint to start and that's kind of your hierarchy of your course and then you move out to the storyboards or you can just have them be one big massive document but your storyboards really come into play when you're trying to put it up onto an LMS or you're trying to build out your uh, articulate or captivate project. That's right, because you do storyboard uh, for university courses too, right? When you do write that blue that blueprint, that's like a storyboard. Yeah, then like if you're if you're doing like a course in Blackboard, you might map out like what are all your items, you know, what are your assignments, and then you can put in your instructions and your settings. So that way, when it comes down the road to like revise the course, they know what the settings are. They know what, you know, might, they might have to tweak and then they have like a document because you never know you could end up migrating from, you know, one LMS to another and you could end up losing your content. Um, so then you have kind of this ancillary document that really houses the course in addition to having it on an LMS. We did it. We got through all the terms listed in our Google Doc. <laughs> like, it's like if there, if, I'm sure that there are like a million others that we didn't cover, but we figured these were, these were the awesomest ones. Yeah, they're the um, most awesome, the most widely used, and people throw them out there like everyone should know what they're talking about. Which may or may not always be the case, but hopefully now, now everybody knows. Yeah, it's like we just kind of hung out and read the dictionary to you. <laughs> what we do. <laughs> That's what we do. <laughs> we didn't even make it micro-learning at all. <laughs> but we did make it mobile because you can just carry this podcast around with you. So there you yeah. go. I mean, I mean, you could technically go and chunk all of these into little bite-sized blips. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> would you like? Would you like <laughs> to hear me say <laughs> mobile learning? Completing the podcast. That's it. And Rachel, thank you so much for coming on here with me. I'm definitely going to have you in future social. We already have like two other topics that we're going to like come talk about. But yeah. I'm so happy to have you. So do you have any uh, last thing you'd want to tell uh, somebody who wants to become an idol? If, if you want to become an idol, I am, I am so happy that I made my like career shift from video production. I still get to do some of that. So I didn't know how many different things like are involved in instructional design. Um, so if it's not your background to be in education, 
like don't ever have any type of fear or doubt like you can totally pick up these especially like if you've got good analytical skills and creative thinking skills like this is really like my jam um so i really just i wish everybody like the best of luck if you know you're thinking about making the career change um it's definitely a, a really fun field to be in amen amen thank you thank you thank you rachel Huddish. we really appreciate you thanks for having me robin all right talk to you soon bye bye thank you so much for listening you can find the show notes for this episode at idlecourses.com. If you like this podcast and you want to become an instructional designer and online learning developer, join me in the Idle Courses Academy where you'll learn to build all the... If you like this podcast and you want to become an instructional designer and online learning developer, join me in the Idle Courses Academy where you'll learn to build all the assets you'll need to land your first job, early access to this podcast, tutorials for how to use the e-learning authoring tools, templates for everything course building, and paid instructional design experience opportunities. And paid instructional design experience opportunities. You can sign up for the waitlist at idlecourses.com. Now get out there and build transcendent courses.